1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I have the real pleasure to have a former guest of the podcast back on with his newest book. Uh, the book is titled The Cash Ceiling. Why Only the Rich Run for Office, and What We Can Do About It. The book is published by Princeton University Press, and the author is Nicholas Carnes. Nick, how are you doing today?
0: I'm uh, never better. Thanks so much for having me back, Keith.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The book is uh, um, uh, speaks to what your previous book is about, and we'll talk about, about all of that. Uh, but since it's been a little while since you were on the podcast, maybe you can just share a little bit about uh, what you've been up to and where you are now.
0: Oh, sure. So, um, I study the shortage of politicians from working-class backgrounds in our political institutions. So, so people who do manual labor jobs, service industry jobs, and clerical jobs uh, make up a little bit over half of the labor force, um, but less than you know 3% of the typical state legislature, less than 2% of the jobs that a member of Congress had before they were a member of Congress. And uh, last time I was here, I was talking about research on why uh, or how that inequality affects public policy, you know, how, uh, it, why it matters that so few working class people become politicians. Um, what I want to talk to you about today is some new research in a new book on uh, why it is in the first place that working class people never become politicians, what keeps them out.
1: And, and you know, before we get to this new book, um, maybe you can just, you know, give us the the quickest of quick synthesis about why it's a problem for for a democracy uh, when these class uh, uh, differences exist in who uh, is elected who serves in an elected office um you allude to it in in your description just then of the public policy effects but sort of in a nutshell what is what's the impact on on public policy and democracy when only uh, people from a certain class or almost only people from a certain class serve in elected office. So what was the argument of, of the last book?
0: So the argument there is really that um, people from different social classes understandably have different perspectives on the issues facing government. So for instance, if you wanted to make a law uh, about whether people could sue their doctor uh, for malpractice, if you let a panel of doctors make that law, that would be you get a very different law than if you let a panel of insurance companies uh, make it or a panel of patients. You would get a different outcome depending on uh, uh, who was uh, in the room making decisions. And this is sort of a very old political principle that says if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Right. Uh, uh, that it really matters who is in the room making uh, decisions that affect everybody. Now, in the case of working class people, they tend to understandably have more pro-worker or more kind of politically progressive views. They tend to uh, be more supportive of things like increases to the minimum wage, unemployment insurance, um, regulations on businesses, social safety net programs. Working class Americans tend to support those things at higher rates when you keep working class Americans out of political institutions like city councils and state legislatures and Congress, you actually bias public policy in favor of what more affluent Americans want, which is sort of more conservative policies, more pro-business, more pro-rich. And in my earlier research, I was interested in quantifying that, really studying um, the average differences between politicians from different social classes in terms of their own personal views And the choices they make, and the kinds of bills they introduce, and the kinds of policies they pass. And in every data set I looked at, I found this same basic pattern, which is um, when a politician has less experience in working class jobs, or when a political institution has fewer working class people in it, public policy really, really moves away from what working class people want and towards uh, economic outcomes that, that favor the rich.
1: So this really does set up this book, uh, which looks at the the most obvious next question, which is, uh, how come this is the case? Um, and there's, it seems to be like there's a lot of reasons why people don't run for office, but there's a particular folk wisdom about why working class people don't run. I wonder if you could describe what the sort of accepted explanation for the class patterns In who runs for office what what is that sort of the typical explanation people give and then we can get to whether this the folk wisdom is is right or wrong
0: sure so i've been researching this you know general topic for about a decade and you know when i tell people i study why working class politicians never become working class people never become politicians they often you know share with me kind of their personal theories and the most common explanations i hear are uh, that working class people might be less qualified like wouldn't we want a lawyer making laws? Um, And that working class people are less favored by voters. So, well, if if only affluent professionals get elected in a democracy, isn't that just an expression of the will of the people? And so the book kind of starts with those two explanations and tests them because those are really important hypotheses. If it really is the case that working class Americans make bad politicians or that voters really want to be governed by the rich – in a way, uh, uh, you know, who are we to, to tamper with the status quo?
1: So uh, tell us what, what you found in the, really the first half of the book. Uh, what evidence do we have that these conventions are uh, largely wrong about potential working class candidates? And, and then after that, um, what do you find are the, the real barriers to more working class voters running for office?
0: Yeah, so there really isn't much evidence to support either of those hunches. And that's kind of interesting because people will uh, really insist that working-class Americans are less qualified. But if you look at data on the kinds of qualities people really want in a politician, things like honesty and work ethic, um, things like you know loyalty to the political party and friendliness, um, qualities like those are not the exclusive domain of affluent Americans. There are lots of working-class people out there who seem to have the raw personal qualities that would make someone, you know, potentially qualified to hold office someday. They follow politics. They understand the issues. Um, um, they like it. They like working with people. They're good at compromise. You name it. There's not really a personal quality that working class people just lack that, that a reasonable person would say this should disqualify this social group from holding office. Um, So so the qualification story, I can't really find any evidence to support it anywhere. And then when working class people actually do hold office in, in the real world, it's not like disaster follows. There are actually lots of cities that have majority working class city councils, and they tend to do about as well as other cities. They grow at similar rates. Their finances look equally healthy. So I just can't find a shred of evidence that working class Americans don't hold office because they're not qualified. Um, the voter explanation doesn't really pan out either. When working class candidates run, they tend to attract about as many votes as other candidates. Um, and that's true both in real elections and in randomized control trials with hypothetical candidates. Um, so, so I can't find really any evidence to support either of those theories. Um, and, and the book walks through kind of the non-findings on the qualification story and the voter bias story.
1: Yeah, but what about then? Uh, what are the real barriers? If if these don't, um, in in um, the 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 evidence uh, suggests that these are the real uh, uh, barriers that working class voters face. What do you find? You, you find at least these two primary barriers. What are they?
0: So, working class people almost never hold office, not because they aren't qualified or because they run and lose, but because they just don't run in the first place. And and like you mentioned, there seem to be two obstacles that stop qualified working class Americans from running, and they're sort of inspired by the literature on general political participation, the civic volunteerism model, which says people don't participate when they can't, they don't have the resources, they don't want to, or nobody asks them. And what I find in my research is that resources and recruitment uh, seem to be the two factors that most clearly distinguish qualified working class candidates from equally qualified professionals. Qualified workers can't take time off work, they can't give up their income in order to run a a busy campaign, and they aren't encouraged. Uh, The people who could help them get over those hurdles, who could help them uh, find the resources to run campaigns, political party leaders, civic organizations, sitting politicians, the people who recruit new candidates tend to pass over qualified workers in favor of sort of the more familiar white-collar options. So it seems to come down to, at the micro level, resources and recruitment. Working class people don't run because they can't, and no one asks them.
1: In, in chapter three, you focus uh, specifically on the recruitment practices, and that is the recruitment practices of of political parties. Would you describe the the, the experiment that you designed uh, and what you discovered about who, who does the, the best or the worst job? Of recruiting working class candidates, so so ha- how does this work? And and at the at the very local level, in, in where a lot of the recruitment for the vast majority of elected uh, offices, uh, how does that work?
0: So recruitment is one of these really important political processes that I think, as a field, political science hasn't studied carefully enough. Um, we focus a lot of attention on who wins elections. So we start with you know there are two candidates, which one is going to be more likely to succeed in the race. Um, But my research in this book tries to take a step back and think about, well, why were those two people or those, you know, however many people on the ballot in the first place? Because that's a really important winnowing process, too. And the way I get at that is I study the chairs of county level branches of the two major political parties. So nationwide, there are about 6,000 or so county-level branches of the Republican and Democratic parties. And the book uses a collaborative survey that I conducted with three co-PIs, Melody Crowdermeyer, David Brockman, and Chris Scovran. We surveyed all 6,000 of these county-level chairs and asked them questions. We're all interested in different topics, so I was asking them questions about how they thought about candidates from the working class, um, you know, and uh, whether they recruited them, and we even included a, a hypothetical candidate experiment. To see how they behave, uh, we asked the party chairs to evaluate two randomly generated hypothetical candidates.
1: And, and what did you find?
0: Um, so the candidates, uh, this was sort of a really hard test of the idea that party leaders are biased against workers. So the candidates were generated at random. All the things that are normally correlated with your social class in the real world, we can kind of uncorrelate in the study and just see Is there a penalty in the minds of an important candidate recruiter? Is there a penalty for you if you just have a working class job? You do everything else right, um, but you have a working class job. And I think I was a little bit surprised to find that even then, yeah, there is in the minds of party leaders a, a penalty for people who are otherwise identical, but who are just described as, I have a working class job. They think those individuals are less likely to win the primary and less likely to win the general, um, and they're really, really concerned uh, by about, there's about a 20 percentage point difference in the likelihood that a party leader will say, I think that hypothetical candidate will raise enough money. So party leaders are really worried when they hear, I have a working class job, they think you're not going to be able to raise enough money for your race, and I'm worried about you, and I would rather uh, uh, back a more you know, conventional white collar candidate.
1: Now if if uh, resources are a barrier and recruitment is a barrier one of the obvious solutions would be to increase public financing of campaigns. I wonder if you'd describe for us how how a typical public financing plan works and then whether this is the silver bullet to solve this this problem that you've now spent two books on. Um, is public financing uh, the solution to this problem?
0: So I kind of started with that assumption and actually did some research uh, at the beginning of this project to see whether places that have publicly financed elections do, in fact, have more working class candidates. Um, because there's one school of thought that should say, well, you know, sure, uh, making running for office easier will lower the barriers. But uh, the complication with public financing is twofold. First, some public financing systems still require candidates to raise a lot of money up front. So Hawaii has a matching fund system for its state legislative race, where um, uh, candidates, once they raise a certain amount, are then eligible for public financing for the rest of the campaign. But the amount they have to raise up front is $100,000. And so that's you know actually a pretty sizable obstacle for, for you know, a person of normal means. Um, so that's, that's problem number one with public financing. Problem number two is public financing makes running for office easier for everyone. So, so you know, you're reducing the barriers, not just for working class candidates, but also for um, affluent candidates. And so you're making it easier for them to run too. But I think the biggest problem with public financing and the reason why in my research, I didn't find an association between public financing and working class office holding um, is that public financing um, reduces the amount that of time that candidates have to spend fundraising, but they still have to spend tons and tons of time doing all of the other things that go into a campaign. And that's the part that screens out working class people is that they just don't have the time. They can't take time off work. They can't lose income. They can't quit their jobs and work full time on their own campaigns. And so even though fundraising is a little bit easier in public financing states, candidates still have to spend about the same amount of time on their campaigns. And so publicly financing elections, at the end of the day, doesn't help working class representation. Now, that's not to say it's a bad idea. I actually personally support public financing. I check the box on my tax forms. Um, But public financing isn't a silver bullet that'll solve every problem in our democracy. And it's a mistake to say, oh, well, we're going to fight for public financing and we will therefore solve the, the shortage of working class politicians.
1: So, so if not that, uh, this would be the the thing that most people would know about. Uh, even if most of us don't don't live in places with with extensive public financing systems, um, the second half of your book uh, looks at what can be done, and you have a variety of of creative solutions. So, give us an idea of, of how we might address this issue. What are what are the, what's on the top of your agenda for for how to address this uh, working class candidate problem?
0: So. There are a lot of options out there for political parties or civic organizations that want to get involved in solving this problem. And they, they actually look a lot like the interventions that have helped historically to increase the number of women in political office. So so when groups wanted to increase women's representation, they didn't sort of you know traditionally tinker with like the institutional rules of the game, like how elections are financed. They just identified talented women, recruited them, Train them, supported them with early seed money, and helped them overcome any other obstacles they faced. And those are the kinds of interventions, when they're applied to working class people, that seem to have the most promise. Um, so programs that identify, recruit, and train workers, like the AFL-CIO New Jersey's can- Labor Candidate School, and programs that provide uh, workers with uh, special funding, either to seed their campaigns, so to to give them early money for their campaigns, or even uh, scholarships to run for office, basically campaign donations that are specifically designated to pay for the candidate's cost of living if they have to cut back on work, if they have to give up income, or even quit their job in order to campaign. Those kind of interventions seem to have a lot more promise um, because they can specifically target working class candidates and basically say, there's a structural obstacle in your path, we will uh, help you overcome it, we'll help you work around it. Um, and, and those interventions that specifically target workers and that address uh, uh, the barriers they're facing seem to have a lot more potential than kind of, you know, just big universal changes to the campaign process.
1: Where this book uh, leaves off in some ways is the 2018 campaign. The book is not about this campaign, doesn't have data from this campaign, but there's some obvious reasons to, to ask you about uh, who's running this year and, and who's likely to win and, and whether they reflect um, the same pattern that you find in your book, this cash ceiling, or whether the, the kinds of programs that you've alluded to are starting to have an effect on the, um, the, the array of candidates. So so take us to this campaign, and, and uh, maybe you can just offer some thoughts about who's running this year.
0: Sure. So 2018, to me, looks like a traditional cash-sealing election. The vast, vast majority of candidates are affluent people from white-collar backgrounds, and there are a few notable exceptions. So, for instance, Randy Bryce in Wisconsin, a former iron worker. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York, a former restaurant server. So you do see a very small number of candidates who have experience in working class jobs who are making it into the general election in 2018. But for the most part, those candidates are the exception, not the rule. They stand out and they're memorable precisely because they've overcome the exceptional barriers that normally keep uh, working class people off of our ballots.
1: Again, the book uh, is The Cash Ceiling, Why Only the Rich Run for Office and What We Can Do About It. Uh, Nick's book is published by Princeton University Press this year and available widely. Uh, Nick Carnes, thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thanks so much for having me.